Lupin's marriage. Ten minutes later, the Duke sent his servant Hyacinthe to the post with three express messages. At four o'clock, in Angelique's presence, he saw the three cousins: Moussy, fat, heavy, pasty-faced; Damboise, slender, fresh-colored, and shy; Caoche, short, thin, and unhealthy-looking. All three old bachelors by this time, lacking distinction in dress or appearance. The meeting was a short one. The duke had worked out his whole plan of campaign—a defensive campaign of which he set forth the first stage in explicit terms. Angelique and I will leave Paris tonight for our place in Brittany. I rely on you, my three nephews, to help us get away. You, Dombois, will come and fetch us in your car with the hood up. You, Musy, will bring your big motor and kindly see to the luggage with Hyacinthe, my man. You, Caos, will go to the Gare d'Orléans and book our berths. You, Caos, will go to the Gare d'Orléans and book our berths in the sleeping car for Vannes by the ten forty train. Is that settled? The rest of the day passed without incident. The Duke, to avoid any accidental indiscretion, waited until after dinner to tell Hyacinthe to pack a trunk and a portmanteau. Hyacinthe was to accompany them as well as Angelique's maid. At nine o'clock, all the other servants went to bed by their master's order. At ten minutes to ten, the duke, who was completing his preparations, heard the sound of a motor horn. The porter opened the gates of the courtyard. The duke, standing at the window, recognized Damboise's landaulet. "Tell him I shall be down presently," he said to Hyacinthe, "and let Mademoiselle know." In a few minutes, as Hyacinthe did not return, he left his room. But he was attacked on the landing by two masked men who gagged and bound him before he could utter a cry, and one of the men said to him in a low voice, "Take this as a first warning, Monsieur le Duc. If you persist in leaving Paris and refusing your consent, it will be a more serious matter." And the same man said to his companion, "Keep an eye on him. I will see to the young lady." By that time, two other confederates had secured the lady's maid, and Angelique, herself gagged, lay fainting on a couch in her boudoir. She came to almost immediately under the stimulus of a bottle of salts held to her nostrils, and when she opened her eyes, she saw bending over her a young man in evening clothes with a smiling and friendly face, who said, "I implore your forgiveness, Mademoiselle. All these happenings are a trifle sudden, and this behavior rather out of the way." But circumstances often compel us to deeds of which our conscience does not approve. Pray, pardon me. He took her hand very gently and slipped a broad gold ring on the girl's finger, saying, "There, now we are engaged. Never forget the man who gave you this ring. He entreats you not to run away from him and to stay in Paris and await the proofs of his devotion. Have faith in him." He said all this in so serious and respectful a voice, with so much authority and deference, that she had not the strength to resist. Their eyes met. He whispered, "The exquisite purity of your eyes. It would be heavenly to live with those eyes upon one. Now close them." He withdrew.
his accomplices followed suit. The car drove off, and the house in the Rue de Varennes remained still and silent until the moment when Angélique, regaining complete consciousness, called out for the servants. They found the duke, Hyacinthe, the lady's maid, and the porter and his wife all tightly bound. A few priceless ornaments had disappeared, as well as the duke's pocketbook and all his jewelry, tie-pins, pearl studs, watch, and so on. The police were advised without delay. In the morning, it appeared that, on the evening before, D'Amboise, when leaving his house in the motor car, was stabbed by his own chauffeur and thrown half-dead into a deserted street. Musi and Kaorsh had each received a telephone message purporting to come from the Duke, countermanding their attendance. Next week, without troubling further about the police investigation, without obeying the summons of the examining magistrate, without even reading Arsène Lupin's letters to the paper on the Varennes flight, the Duke, his daughter, and his valet stealthily took a slow train for Vannes and arrived one evening at the old feudal castle that towers over the headland of Sarzo. The duke at once organized a defense, with the aid of the Breton peasants, true medieval vassals to a man. On the fourth day, Musi arrived, on the fifth, Caorche, and on the seventh, D'Amboise, whose wound was not as severe as had been feared. The duke waited two days longer before communicating to those about him what, now that his escape had succeeded in spite of Lupin, he called the second part of his plan. He did so in the presence of the three cousins, by a dictatorial order to Angelique expressed in these peremptory terms. All this bother is upsetting me terribly. I have entered into a struggle with a man whose daring you have seen for yourself, and the struggle is killing me. I want to end it at all costs. There is only one way of doing so, Angelique, and that is for you to release me from all responsibility by accepting the hand of one of your cousins. Before a month is out, you must be the wife of Musi, Caorge, or D'Amboise. You have a free choice. Make your decision. She felt that he would be inflexible, and that she must end by submitting to his wishes. She accepted. Whichever you please, father. I love none of them, so I may as well be unhappy with one as with the other. Thereupon, a fresh discussion ensued, as the duke wanted to compel her to make her own choice. She stood firm. Reluctantly, and for financial considerations, he named D'Amboise. The bans were published without delay. From that moment, the watch in and around the castle was increased twofold, all the more inasmuch as Lupin's silence and the sudden cessation of the campaign which he had been conducting in the press could not but alarm the Duke de Sarzeau-Vando. It was obvious that the enemy was getting ready to strike and would endeavor to oppose the marriage by one of his characteristic moves. Nevertheless, nothing happened. Nothing two days before the ceremony, nothing on the day before, nothing on the morning itself. The marriage took place in the mayor's office, followed by the religious celebration in church, and the thing was done. Then, and not till then, the duke breathed freely. 
Notwithstanding his daughter's sadness, notwithstanding the embarrassed silence of his son-in-law, who found the situation a little trying, he rubbed his hands with an air of pleasure, as though he had achieved a brilliant victory. Tell them to lower the drawbridge, he said to Hyacinth, and to admit everybody. We have nothing more to fear from that scoundrel. After the wedding breakfast, he had wine served out to the peasants and clinked glasses with them. They danced and sang. At three o'clock, he returned to the ground floor room. It was the hour for his afternoon nap. He walked to the guard room at the end of the suite, but he had no sooner placed his foot on the threshold that he stopped suddenly and exclaimed, What are you doing here, Domboise? Is this a joke? Domboise was standing before him dressed as a Breton fisherman in a dirty jacket and breeches torn, patched, and many sizes too large for him. The duke seemed dumbfounded. He stared with eyes of amazement at that face which he knew and which, at the same time, roused memories of a very distant past within his brain. Then he strode abruptly to one of the windows overlooking the castle terrace and called, Angelique? What is it, father? she asked, coming forward. Where's your husband? Over there, father, said Angelique, pointing to Domboise, who was smoking a cigarette and reading some way off. The duke stumbled and fell into a chair with a great shudder of fright. Oh, I shall go mad. But the man in the fisherman's garb knelt down before him and said, Look at me, uncle. You know me, don't you? I'm your nephew the one who used to play here in the old days, the one whom you called Jaco. Just think a minute. Here, look at this scar. Yes, stammered the duke. I recognize you. It's Jacques. But the other one. He put his hands to his head. And yet, no, it can't be. Explain yourself. I don't understand. I don't want to understand. There was a pause during which the newcomer shut the window and closed the door leading to the next room. Then he came up to the old duke, touched him gently on the shoulder to wake him from his torpor, and without further preface, as though to cut short any explanation that was not absolutely necessary, spoke as follows. Four years ago, that is to say, in the eleventh year of my voluntary exile, when I settled in the extreme south of Algeria, I made the acquaintance, in the course of a hunting expedition arranged by a big Arab chief, of a man whose geniality, whose charm of manner, whose consummate prowess, whose indomitable pluck, whose combined humor and depth of mind fascinated me in the highest degree. The Count d'Andresi spent six weeks as my guest. After he left, we kept up correspondence at regular intervals. I also often saw his name in the papers in the society and sporting columns. He was to come back, and I was prepared to receive him three months ago, when, one evening, as I was out riding, my two Arab attendants flung themselves upon me, bound me, blindfolded me, and took me traveling day and night for a week along deserted roads to a bay on the coast, where five men awaited them. I was at once carried on board a small steam yacht, which weighed anchor without delay. There was nothing to tell me who the men were, nor what their object was in kidnapping me. They had locked me into a narrow cabin, secured by a massive door and lit by a porthole protected by two iron crossbars. 
Every morning, a hand was inserted through a hatch between the next cabin and my own, and placed on my bunk two or three pounds of bread, a good helping of food, and a flagon of wine, and removed the remains of yesterday's meals, which I put there for the purpose. From time to time, at night, the yacht stopped, and I heard the sound of the boat rowing to some harbor, and then returning, doubtless, with provisions. Then we set out once more, without hurrying, as though on a cruise of people of our class, who travel for pleasure and who are not pressed for time. Sometimes, standing on a chair, I would see the coastline through my porthole, too indistinctly, however, to locate it. And this lasted for weeks. One morning, in the ninth week, I perceived that the hatch had been left unfastened, and I pushed it open. The cabin was empty at the time. With an effort, I was able to take a nail file from a dressing table, 